Can you say hello to everybody, Jay Johnson? Hello, everybody. I apologize for the delay. I'm a much better <laughs> baseball coach than I am navigator of Twitter spaces. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. All right, guys. Uh, let's get started. Jay, I'm going to introduce you really quick so everybody knows uh, who you are. If they don't know you, uh, I, I, they haven't been alive for a while. Um, Jay, I'm going to just go right to the Jay Johnson file, as I call it. Uh, Jay grew up in Oroville, California, a Northern California community of working class people. It would be hard to imagine as a young person that you would ever have a chance to someday lead two of the most storied programs in college baseball, University of Arizona and now LSU Baseball. And that's just what Coach Jay Johnson is doing. Jay is seen through the college baseball microscope as a great leader, recruiter, and builder of offensive teams and players. Jay played uh, at Shasta College and Point Loma Nazarene as a second baseman. Once his playing days were over, he started his coaching career at Point Loma as an assistant, became the head coach in 2005, then graduated to USD as an assistant to now Hawaii Rainbows head coach Rich Hill from 2006 through 2013 before getting his second shot of becoming head coach in 2014 at the University of Nevada, Reno. Jay guided the Wolfpack to a 72-42 and 42 record. In 2015, Nevada posted a 41-15 and 15 record and captured the school's first ever Mountain West title with a 22-7 and 7 mark in league play. The Wolfpack was ranked in the top 25 for much of the season. The 41 overall wins ranked second in program history. In 2015, Jay was named the Mountain West Coach of the Year. After two years at UNR, he was hired to become the head coach at Pac-12 Powerhouse Program, University of Arizona in Tucson. From 2016 to 2021, Jay became the architect of a college baseball best offense in 2021. The 44-year-old Johnson led Arizona to two College World Series appearances, including a championship series berth in his first year in 2016. And over his five full seasons, Jay took the reins of a program with a rich tradition and instantly made it richer. After two NCAA Omaha finishes in 2016 and 2021, Johnson became the 26th head coach in LSU baseball history, succeeding Paul Maneri, who retired after the 21 season. Johnson and his wife, Maureen, who is who is on this Twitter call as Maureen, a former University of Arizona soccer player, were married in 2016. Coach Johnson, finally, welcome to Athlete 911 Clinics and the Mentors of Baseball discussion. Thank you, Butch. It's awesome to be on here. I apologize to everybody for the delay and uh, glad we got it figured out and looking forward to spending a bunch of time with you guys. Okay, let's start here. We got a ton of questions for you, but I'm going to start with uh, a question, uh, you know, from me first. Uh, can you please tell us your philosophy in a nutshell? What LSU faithful can expect of Jay Johnson teams and what can your opponents expect when they face the Tigers? 
Yeah, thanks, Butch. I think uh, it comes down to creating an identity that is, I want to be very simple. Number one, I want to create a very fundamentally sound team. You hear coaches talk a lot about that, but we boil it down to three areas. Number one, from the mound, we want our pitchers to be aggressive at attacking the strike zone. Uh, on the field, we want to do a great job of controlling the baseball, both catching it and throwing it. And at the plate, we want to separate balls from strikes, crush mistakes, and really, really be tough outs with two strikes. That's a very simple way of looking at the game. I've, I've heard of an analogy I like is that the strike zone management from both the mound and the plate is like the line of scrimmage in football. If you don't do that very well, you're going to have a hard time. So that would be the fundamental approach to it. Secondly, uh, I would hope uh, we would be a team that values winning more than our opponents. So competitiveness is the next thing that I would want our program to be known for. And then thirdly, uh, character. And that's on the field and off the field. For me, character is just about the decisions that you make. And off the field, obviously, we want our players to make really good decisions. But on the field, your ability to make decisions is really important as well, how to deal with success and not uh, fall into the complacency trap, how to deal with failure and respond, and then really how to stay present and dominate the moment. And so the identity that I'd hope you see, the brand of baseball that I hope you would see would be one of great fundamentals, high-level competitiveness, and uh, team and, and players and program of, of high character. Awesome. In, in my research of you, the word that continually came up was elite. Elite development, elite talent, elite character with a work ethic known to mankind because that is what's going to be required to be successful in your program. Many young players hear the word elite. You use the word in daily words. What goes into building an elite player and person? Yeah, I think it's it's first off mindset. I mean, all of us, you know, we're born with some God-given ability that probably makes us at least average at whatever we do. I think when you aspire to be the best that you can be as a player, as a coach, as a worker, as a teammate, as a friend, as a family member, it takes more than that to be great at it. And for me, what we try to do is, is simplify whatever task we want for every person in the organization. Could be coaching staff member and their responsibilities, player, you know, based on position, based on role on the team, and make it very, very clear to them what they need to do to really be successful as an individual and help our team be successful. So what we try to do is create the roadmap. I think it's unfair for coaches to – expect players to do something and then the player doesn't know what the expectation is. So we try to set the expectation clear, provide the blueprint for what we want them to do, the training to do it, and then teach them the mindset that is needed in order to do it at a high level. Then if you do that day after day after day after day, you're going to start separating yourself from people. Might be as an individual player, might be from a team standpoint. And so I think everybody can be average. Everybody can do it. I think doing it at a different level takes a special makeup, takes a special character, takes a special mindset, and, and most importantly, a commitment. And for me, it's just it's about how you separate yourself because everybody's going to lift weights. Everybody's going to take BP. Everybody's going to do defensive fundamentals. How you do those things is what 
separates you from average to good and from good to great. What do you, your expectation level there at LSU, uh, how, how different have you, is, has it been at LSU so far in your time there than at University of Arizona where it's a great program also? You know, I, for me, the expectation level comes down to two things. Number one, that we're the most prepared team in the country and then maximum effort towards executing what it is we're trying to do, which is to be an elite Division One baseball team. Honestly, and I mean this wholeheartedly, this is not just coach speak. I don't give a lot of thought about anybody else's expectations because the expectation at this place is to be one of the elite teams in college baseball. That's my expectation. But what we try to do is put the focus into the work that it's going to take to do it and the task at hand, the daily work, you know, some people would call it the grind and then let the results take care of themselves. And if you recruit at a good level, if you develop at a good level, and then you're consistent at doing what you need to do to be successful, you know, a lot of people talk about being process oriented. We truly want to do that. So define that process, be awesome at that process. And then when you do it, you can kind of play on game day with this peace of mind where you can surrender the result. And I know that sounds crazy when we're in a results-oriented business, but when you're dealing with baseball and you're dealing with high-level competition, I think that's what can separate you as a player and, and ultimately what we want to be as a program. Jay, you, you have had a lot of success with hitters, and you're known you know, around the baseball world as being really uh, in tune with what hitters are doing. What, what are some things that you can tell these young kids that are on here, these high school guys that want to play at your level? What can you tell them that they need to be able to do with that bat in their hand? Yeah, I mean, we could spend all night talking about this, and it's something I'm passionate about. I think for me – you know, the age, the, the old adage of pitching and defense wins. I, I do believe that to be true, but I've wanted to try to find a niche of like, Hey, I'm a hitting coach. I'm an offensive coach. How can we do this better than everybody else? And the first thing is the mental discipline part. Like I mentioned failure. Well, that rears its head in hitting an offense more than any other place in sports. And so developing an understanding of, okay, this is more difficult than any other task in sports. The stick that you need to have to do it, the consistency and mindsets that you need to, need to do it is understanding like, hey, this is going to be tough, so how are we going to be different at it? Number one is identifying the things that are most important. So we try to keep it very, very simple for our team. Number one, physically just getting them in position to hit early and on time. I think that's something that we are better at and different at than most places. The number one flaw I see when I go recruiting young players is they're never ready to hit on time. So they're sped up on fastballs and they're um, in between or out in front on breaking pitches or off-speed pitches. So really getting into the ground early. So that'll do two things. Number one, that helps the hitter see the ball better. You were talking about a moving object that's not very big and changing speeds. If your eyes are moving, it's going to be impossible to be on time. Number two, we go to that next phase of really making a commitment to see the ball, seeing the ball early, 
what would be out of the pitcher's hand, staying focused on the ball as it's in flight. And number three, seeing it late, what we would call at contact or after contact. So really developing really good fundamentals with their eyes. I've had really good hitters before that maybe weren't perfect mechanically or lacked strength or athleticism, but were very productive because they had elite ability to see the ball. And if you think about your eyes and how they impact your pitch selection, how they impact your timing, how they impact where you want your bat to go. I mean, if you didn't use them very well, you're not going to be very successful. And the number three is really staying committed to our approach. And like I said, it kind of goes back to hitting mistakes. It goes back to being a very difficult out with two strikes. It goes to understanding the game and what that at bat means to move the offense. And so that the player becomes a bigger part of, Hey, it's just, they're at bat. They're at bat is meaningful to help the team score runs. So getting in position early and on time consistently, really teaching them how to use their eyes properly, and then really being committed to and staying in approach or a plan. And so those are the three things that we really hammer on a daily basis. And if we go into the season being good at those three things, a lot of other things take care of themselves. Hey, Jay, you said something interesting, seeing it late. Can you tell these young kids and these parents what you mean by seeing it late? Yeah, for me, we break down our our vision fundamentals or what I call our mechanics of seeing the ball into, into three phases. Number one is picking the ball up as early as we can out of the pitcher's hand or the release point. That's what's called zone one. So if you pick up the ball early, then that gives you the max distance to be able to make good swing decisions, good take decisions, and gives you the best opportunity to recognize fastball versus off speed. So that would be what we would call seeing it early in zone one. Zone number two is literally from the time the ball leaves the pitcher's hand all the way into contact point. So we want to do a good job of getting our eyes in front of the baseball, which will allow us to track the ball, be on time, separate balls from strikes. And then zone three, and what we mean by seeing it late is simply having our head down at contact or after contact. You think of, especially nowadays with the advances in pitching, the best pitchers have late movement, sink, run, ride. If that ball passes your eyes, you're basically playing a guessing game in terms of where you're trying to get the barrel if you don't have good vision mechanics or seeing the ball as deep as you possibly can. Awesome. Great, great stuff. When, you, when you're looking at uh, these kids and these calls are about helping these kids in their, their process, what would be some really useful drills that you would have uh, young kids do that are trying to get to the next level? Yeah, I think establishing a couple things are important. I mean, from a physical standpoint, making sure you load and get in position to hit early or what we would call being into the ground. I mean, it helps you see the ball better. It also helps you move properly. When I talk about hitters not you know, being able to repeat a swing or re- repeat a, a mechanics of what they train in the cage into the game, it's because they've allowed the pitcher to disrupt their timing by not getting into position on time. And so anything that they can do with an early stride or no stride, which gets them in position to where they can use their whole body to swing the bat and then translate that into the game by getting in position into the game. We do a lot of stuff with machines 
at high velocity. We do a lot of change of speed stuff with machines. Like we'll set three plates up, you know, one at like 87 miles an hour. Then they move up to one that's 90. Then they move up to 93. And it's not to change their swings is to change their timing of just simply getting in position smoother and earlier as the velocity goes up. And if they can do that, and they can do that at game time. Now you've been in position to hit the fastball. You're in position to train the swing you've trained in the game, excuse me, can now show up because you're not late. Because what happens when we're late getting ready is our eyes tell us we're late. And then you have to do something or make some move that you haven't trained to try to get there on time, which is using usually taking you in and out of the zone too quickly. So I'm all for anything of getting in position to hit early so your body functions right and you use your eyes properly. And then that's the second thing I would say, and it's not necessarily a drill, but really engaging your eyes in batting practice and in monotonous repetition. We all, as, as movers and as hitters, we want to go to something about how you, how you use your lower half. Do you stay square? Do you have the proper hip-shoulder separation? Are you connected? What does your bat path look like? And it's all important. But if we don't use our eyes properly and we don't train our eyes the same way we train our swing, it's, it's meaningless. So we have a saying in our programs where if you fix your eyes, you'll usually fix your swing. And so when I have a guy really struggling, we'll always go back to something timing-based, getting in position, and vision-based in terms of using their eyes. When you, you've, had, you've been lucky enough to coach a lot of good hitters and guys have excelled with you what are some commonalities in these guys that do have success and that do get to the elite level? Good question. I think uh, the first thing is, is they're equal in terms of quality player, quality talent, but their character matches it. I think I had eight players play in the major leagues this year in 2021. And there's not one of them that, was a bad dude off the field and wasn't fully committed to what they needed to do to be successful and made the most out of their talent. So, I mean, that is something that, you know, good decisions, high character, I mean, that doesn't cost anything. That's just you making a choice to, I'm going to live my life right. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to treat people with respect and all of those types of things. So that would be where I would start. Secondly, what I would say is, the ability to see the ball, the ability to get in position, as we've already talked about, the ability to manage the strike zone at a high level, and the ability to bounce back from failure quickly. You know, you mentioned Chris Bryan a little bit earlier. I mean, you're talking about the total package in terms of character, makeup, vision, bat speed, talent, all of those types of things. But you literally could give him one thing between at bats, and he could immediately go do it the next one because he never carried his failure with him too long. He used it to learn from and then move forward. And in, in baseball as a hitter, you have to be able to do that. And uh, that would be a, a commonality, I would say. You know, I, I scouted Chris Bryan in high school, and I saw a huge difference once he got to you. And I, I can remember writing in, in my report, this guy has taken ownership of home plate. What did you do with him to get him to take ownership of home plate? Yeah, I think a couple of things stand out about him. 
Um, number one, the talent's easy to see. The intelligence level was on another planet. You're talking about a guy that was also a 4.6 or 4.7 student. And really with him, all the physical tools were there. We could have done nothing, and he probably still would have been a major leaguer. However, I give him a lot of credit because about 10 to 12 games into his sophomore year, instead of standing straight up, we, we widened him out. We literally just went and he picked his front heel up and then put it down. We got him down lower to the strike zone, which did a couple things. Number one, it got his eyes closer, so he stopped chasing, breaking balls out of the zone. And when he stopped doing that, he realized he started getting more pitches to hit. And then the other thing was his swing could just kind of play natural through the zone instead of having to dump the barrel to go to the bottom to get that pitch, which he could ridiculously hit hard for a topspin double down the left field line but he could stay in the zone longer without having to do that kind of a flatter swing, which gave him more margin for error. And then that led to a bunch of home runs that year. And then I think he hit 31 as a junior and has obviously carried that into it. So he deserves all the credit for that relative to the work that he put in and uh, the adjustments that he made and just being consistent with it. Can you talk about, you've talked about the eyes you talked about the plate, you know, the discipline in the plate. Can you talk about the strength factor and how important it is uh, for these kids that that to get strength? Yeah, hundred percent. I think you know I'm five foot seven and a hundred and eighty pounds, and you can't do a lot about you know what you've been given from a genetic standpoint. Um, you can be small and be a good baseball player. But nowadays, you have to be strong. And I think in terms of committing to the weight room, committing to athleticism, committing to work ethic, the best, the worst you can do is just improve, you know, what your ceiling or excuse me, what your floor is as a player. And so that says a lot to me about um, not just the physical strides that players make, but their mindset of how important baseball is to them and how important being the best they can is to them by how they work in the weight room. But if you go to a major league game or you go to a, a SEC game or a Pac-12 game, you're going to see highly skilled baseball players, but you're also going to see a lot of physically strong and athletic players that have put the time in off the field to be the best that they can be physically. Awesome. Can you, can you Jay talk about, uh, being a warrior in two strike situations and having great discipline at the plate. Can you tell the young players what that means? Yeah. So what we try to do is we try to give them a template of, you know, this is going to be our approach. I'm not going to really get into that a whole lot, but what I will tell you is it's a mindset more than anything else. I mean, odds are when, the pitcher gets the two strikes, he's going to be successful more often than not. So now you can kind of release the result side of it and basically make it hard on him. So we kind of use the analogy of Superman, you know, before two strikes, you're, you're Clark Kent and you're doing your thing. And then you go into the phone booth and then you take on kind of this Superman mentality where the pitcher's probably going to get you, but, at worst, you are going to take him with you, which means we are not going to chase out of the zone, you know, at the top or at the bottom. Uh, we are going to foul off borderline pitches. 
and we are going to be in position when he makes a mistake to allow us to be successful. And then it becomes a sense of pride throughout the team of, hey, after you get to two strikes, how many pitches can you get the guy? It's almost like the yards after contact for the running back in football. And what may happen is you might end up with a two-strike hit. You might not. But if the at-bat is quality, you've driven the pitch count up, you've made the guy work for every out, it may not you know, give you immediate success with your at-bat. But if the starter's out of the game in the fourth, fifth, or sixth inning, now the bullpen has 10-plus outs to go. And in high school baseball, and I'm sure a lot of these players are high school players or junior high players, uh, that's not easy because I'm guessing the best pitchers are starting. And so now we have 10 outs against somebody that the coach does of the other team doesn't have as much faith in as the guy that they just took out. But if you're going up, out on one or two pitches and you go to immediately and swing at a breaking ball in the dirt, you're not applying that pressure to him. So it has a big deal in terms of winning. It has a big deal in terms of creating pressure on the opposing pitcher. And for us, it's more of mindset again, than anything physical that we're doing. So that leads to this next question. You've said winning is about people and getting people to do things they didn't think were possible. What is your day? What's your vision behind this? How do you make people do things they may think impossible to do? Well, I think you have to start with recruiting and, and recruiting the right type of person with the right type of character. I've been very lucky uh, to be at four really good Division One schools and have had really, really good players. With that being said, again, everybody's going to lift weights. All the pitchers are going to do a throwing program. All the hitters are going to take batting practice. How we do those things separates i like to think separates us you know come game day or come competition time and and our commitment level to that but my dad was was my high school football coach he was a great football coach and he was great at inspiring you know we're not talking about college athletes or professional athletes high school players to get bought into a team bought into the fact that they had value and helping the team and then doing something to put them in position to be successful. And for me, I've really just followed that model. I've just been lucky to be able to do it with really talented players, be it here at LSU or at Arizona or at Nevada or at San Diego. And um, I think it's just going all in on one thing and not, not accepting, I don't want to say failure because failure is a part of learning and growing and all of that, but not accept it as, as a, a finality. You know, I've, I heard a great quote, you know, when I was, I was young is like success is never final. And that's true. Um, you know, been to Omaha a couple of times and there's always that, that next day you're thinking about recruiting, you're thinking about the draft, the work that has to be done. You know, it's your success. The previous year has nothing to do with what's going to happen the next year. But on the flip side of it is failure is never fatal unless you let it be. And that is a choice to, either waste a failure and let it discourage you or use a failure as part of learning, growing and improving so that you can be in a better position for success as you move forward. Jay, as you know, everybody aspires to be a starter. There's, there's kids on this phone call that aren't always starters. 
uh, and that have to sit on the bench at times. How um, how important is for you to make all your players understand their roles? How, how do you spell out roles for your guys and make them all feel part of the team as one? Well, one thing I promise you, like if you played for any of our teams, uh, usually there's a 35-man roster, there's a 40-man roster this year. You know, I demand this of myself and our coaching staff is we're going to coach every player on our team. And I think if you talk to any of our players, you know, they would validate that. So we don't get into the role thing until we get pretty close to the season. So what we do is we create a pathway for development for every player. We coach every player within our system. But then as we get closer to Christmas time, we'll lay out exactly the things that that player needs to do to be successful for our team, pitcher, hitter, uh, defender. And then it's incumbent upon them to go out in December and January and work on their own on the things that they can do to help our team be successful. And so the expectations are really clear. And I'll give you an example of that. It's like if we have a fast runner that is not very strong, that's not going to hit a lot of home runs, where can he create value? Okay, he can be a good defensive player, whether he's an infielder or an outfielder. So giving them very specific things for their position that they need to do to be a great defender for the team. Then we talk about offense, okay, the bunting game, being able to drag bunt, push bunt. Then we talk about the importance of managing the strike zone. If it's a smaller player like me, I was 5'7", hitting a fastball up was not going to work good for me. I'm going to fly out to center field or right field every time. So we would give them a drill series to separate fastballs up from fastballs down. So then they could hit the ball hard and low. So whatever your skill set is, I think it's important to own that, to know that, and then center your development around doing the things that you can do to help your team win. Now to answer your question directly, as we get closer to the season, uh, what I talk about with our team all the time is young players change from day to day. So I don't ever hold anybody hostage for where they're at. It's their job to continue to work, to get better, to improve, and our team might look different in game 10 than it does in game one or midseason or in the SEC tournament or the postseason. I have a really good story last year in the in the postseason. Um, I started starting an outfit. And you're talking about the best offensive team in college baseball. Uh, we had a guy that was kind of starting to take some good at bats, hadn't started, but maybe 10 games all year. I felt like he was a good matchup in game one of the regional. We played him, hit a go-ahead home run in like the sixth inning. I think he was the MVP of our regional, started the first couple games of the Super Regional, and um, was a big reason we got to Omaha. But what separated that particular player was the guy was the best teammate, the hardest worker, didn't get down, continued to improve, continued to support the other guys that were playing above him. And I really feel like life rewards people that do things the right way. And that's always going to be one of my favorite stories because we would not have made it to Omaha without that player. And um, the way he handled himself throughout the year set him up to be successful. So be a great teammate, persevere, focus on the things that you can do to improve that can help your team. And if you do that over a long period of time, I think success always comes back and, and has a way of finding you. Jay, what's a great teammate? 
I think it's, it boils down to a couple things. Number one, just this overall ride, overriding mindset of a player's ability to place the needs of the team above their own. I think it's a player that is accountable for their actions and their words. Because what you do and what you say when you're a part of a team, it positively affects that group or it negatively affects it. And that's within your power. So it's a person that's highly accountable. I think it's, it's a person that's trustworthy. Um, it's a person that is going to be what I would call relentless at attacking the things that they need to do to improve themselves because they want their team to be successful. I think uh, I heard a good quote by, I believe it was Doc Rivers, the NBA coach the other day, um, is toughness is doing the right thing for the team when it's not the right thing for you always. And for me, it's just being selfless and it's, it's being accountable for your actions and your words and, and making sure that all of those positively affect all the people around you. Jay, when you, you know, kids react and are reactive and they're young and they're just growing up. What would you tell kids that are trying to, you know, have relationships with their co- high school coaches and do the right things? What are no-nos? What are things they shouldn't do? Well, I think that's probably a better question for their coach as opposed to me. And I think it's, what are the expectations of being a member in a particular program and being part of a team is a privilege. It's not necessarily a right. And it doesn't mean coaches are right all the time or they have the right standards or expectations. But if you're choosing to be a part of that team, then it's your job to uphold those standards. I think if I was to give any young player really good advice is to not make excuses another quote that i heard a long time ago is you know excuses are the nails that build the house of failure and we live in a world right now is nobody really cares why they care what you do and so if you want to make excuses of coaches playing somebody because of x or y or that kind of thing that's not true i don't know very many coaches that don't want to win and don't want to be successful doesn't mean we're not, we're right all the time, but they are trying to put it in thought to do what's best for the team. I really believe that. And so my number one, no, no would be don't make excuses. Wow. That is, that's awesome. That's (laughs) yeah. No excuses. They, they get you nowhere. Right. Jay, can you talk about, uh, you know, there's a lot of coaches on here, and you've had tons of success from an offensive standpoint. Can you talk a little bit about lineup construction? You know, what, what you're looking for in a leadoff hitter, what your two-hole hitter got to do, who's your best hitter, where he hits, and the roles of the other guys in the lineup? Because they're all not important. Yeah, they're all very important. I'll kind of answer it a different way um, than maybe you're asking it, but I think it'll be insightful. It's like uh, several years ago, I think we were struggling at a time to score runs. And so we laid out like this blueprint of, okay, what do we need to do well to win the game? And so we had like a rain out, sat in my office and kind of itemized a few things. Number one, is getting the leadoff man 
every inning on base, any inning that you can get the leadoff man on base is a huge win. It puts the pitcher in a stretch. The pitching coach has to worry about the running game. The catcher has to worry about it. The first baseman is now holding the guy on. It opens another hole. The outfielders have to play in no doubles because they want to make it be two hits to score that guy from first. So we said if we can get the leadoff man on four times during a game, that's going to be very good for us. So we made that a game goal. It's something I've carried with me ever since then, and this is like 12 or 13 years ago. So we want to get the leadoff guy on four times throughout a game. The second thing we want to do, and this is like the key to our whole deal is we want to have three consecutive quality at bats four times throughout the game. We feel if we can do that, you're going to score in every one of those four innings. So that's a minimum of four runs. And in at least one of those sets of three quality at bats, there's a big inning in there. And it also gets this team-wide kind of approach around like, hey, my at bat is really, really meaningful. We want to win the most innings in the game try to keep the guys in the present moment of we want to have more innings won than our opponents. So if there's nine innings, we want to win or tie at least five of those. We want to win the big inning. There's a lot of stats that say, if you win the big inning, you win the game to win the big inning. You have to win what is called the free base war of walks hit by pitches, stolen bases or balls and dirt reads and errors. So now we set up our training kind of around that walks what did i first talk about the ability to stay in your approach and manage the strike zone hit by pitches you know really have a good solid foundation not move our feet uh stolen bases are hard to come by at high levels of college baseball because the catching's good the pitching coaches are good so we put a real premium on being good at reading balls in the dirt and then errors offensively how do you create those you hit balls hard and low and on defense put a premium on playing defense if you win the free base war you'll win the innings most innings you'll win the big inning we want to be awesome at executing what i call red zone offense i like to use a lot of football terms so we have a thought that every time we get a runner to second base with no outs or a runner at third with less than two outs that dude is scoring and so we put a lot of work into situational hitting really slowing the game down what do we need to do to execute there And then a big one that kind of wraps into all of these is we want to get the starting pitcher out of the game before the end of the sixth inning. And that goes back to something I said earlier of 10 plus outs by out of the bullpen. So now going back to your question, that's what we want to do. So all nine guys have to contribute to that. So the leadoff man, I want him to be able to, walk and hit doubles. I want there to be pressure on the opposing pitcher from the very first pitch of the game. If I make a mistake, it's going to get hammered, but this dude is not going to swing at a ball. I've hit a lot of my best players in the two, two spot a lot for one reason. I do not want him left on deck in the ninth inning in a close game. And if he's hitting second, there's a higher percentage of chance he's going to come up. Uh, The number three guy is a versatile guy. I prefer that guy to be left-handed because if the first two, one of the first two guys does a good job, then that hitter is coming up with the guy holding the guy on first base. And so the hole is open. It opens up the field for him. 
the number four hitter is a little different for me is that guy's going to hit with the runner on second base and two outs more than anybody. He's going to hit with runners on first and third and one out a lot. He has to be able to put the ball in play. So the combo of a guy that can hit a double and handle the bat, um, Five is the guy that you feel the base is loaded and one out. Um, the, the, there's the fear of God in the pit, in the pitcher that if I throw this guy a strike, this game is going to get away from us in a hurry. And then six, seven, eight, and nine will usually do something to match up on that day with what's best for the pitcher that we're facing. And literally in order from six, seven, eight, nine of the remaining players, who do I trust to take three really good at bats in that game? And that will fill out the order for us. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. You know, being from the Sacramento area, a lot of people from this area listening to this call, um, can you talk a little bit about Daniel Susak before we get to a couple recruiting questions? Can you, can you talk about him and his ability and what you saw in the year that you had him and the improvements he made? Yeah, I love Daniel. Um, you know, I coached his older brother, Matt, at Nevada. And, um, you know, he was part of a championship team there. Daniel was obviously our catcher last year on, you know, arguably the best team that I've ever coached. Um, turned out a lot of money uh, to come to college. So that will be something that I'll always be grateful for of him and his family. Uh, he fits that category that I talked about with my best players. Um, you have great teams when your best players are your best people. And Daniel is, is at the front of that. Um, when I took this job here at LSU, which is the opportunity of my lifetime, and there wasn't a whole lot of reasons to turn it down. If I would have turned it down, uh, you are mentioning one of the main reasons, just because of how quality that kid was and, and the rest of my players at, at Arizona, like, Leaving a job was not tough. Leaving those players and Daniel at the forefront of it was incredibly difficult. And if I had a, a, a guy that, you know, if every player on your team was like Daniel Susak, you'd obviously win a lot of games because you're talented. But if every person was like Daniel Susak, you would definitely have a championship team. Wow. Great. I mean, if major league teams are listening to this and they hear that about him, with his physical skills, I he I mean he's got to be a top three type pick. No question about it. Somebody um, will be instantaneously better when he's a part of their organization. Yeah, no no doubt. But let me ask you one question about recruiting, and then I got some questions from some of our listeners tonight that they they would love to for you to answer. Um, take us through the process of identifying, pursuing, and communicating to sign. Uh, players that LSU, you know, that LSU is now going to have interest in? Yeah, um, that's a loaded question. So if I miss some of it, Butch, make sure you ask again. I think identifying, I have a, a vague answer, but I think it'll paint a good picture for everybody. Like if we're going to move forward on a player after identifying them, I have to be able to shut my eyes and see them on the field in Omaha doing something to help us win a game. Now, position by position, that's an entirely different criteria. But you're talking about being good enough to be on the field with the last eight teams out of 300 in college baseball and making a difference in making your team better than the team that, that you're playing. 
So there's uncoachable traits in that. If you just want to make it really simple of, you know, from a pitching standpoint, arm speed, from a hitting standpoint, bat speed, from an athleticism standpoint, running speed, you can't necessarily coach those types of, of things. Um, I've talked about character a lot. I mean, it's one of our three core values of our program. So if I'm going to entrust a scholarship and entrust a result of a high leverage, you know, SEC or top 25 type game in this person, I want to be able to trust that their ability is good enough and trust that their character is good enough to train the way that they need to do both mentally and physically to create an advantage for our team. So there's a physical component. There's a mental and character component to identifying the top, top players. Uh, I think the next one that is critically important and it's, it's really, really important at a place like LSU is the family's value on choosing to go to college as opposed to sign a pro contract out of high school. I do not want, a rate, number one rated recruiting class of a bunch of guys that are just going to sign professional contracts um, for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't do our program any good, but I really believe in the college path to of development to professional baseball in terms of the environment that we provide, the resources that we provide from a baseball, from a nutrition, from a strength and conditioning, from a mental health standpoint. Um, doesn't get any better than, than the place that I'm at right now. So we can positively affect any player that wants to be a pro player um, as much as they, as we possibly can. Um, so recruiting the family, I think is, is really important for me. Uh, the signing part, let's say if we commit a player early, I, I mean this sincerely is if we recruit a young player and commit them, I obviously talk about the importance of them improving and getting better you know a line that i'll use if we'll commit like maybe a freshman or a sophomore is we're not interested in the player you are today i'm interested in the player you're going to be three to five years from now well there's a lot of days between now and then so we want to help them use those wisely to put themselves in position to be successful when they come and, and play for us and by doing that um it ends up usually being a better what I would call marriage because the expectations are clear. Uh, we help them along in that process and they also become more prepared to be successful when you actually coach them. So I just really try to communicate well. And, um, and that's, that's helped us have success with getting freshmen on the field. You know, you mentioned Daniel Susak uh, last year, Jacob Berry, Daniel Susak, TJ Nichols, all those guys were key key parts of that team and and they were ready because we communicated the expectations to them. They did the work to meet them. And uh, now they all have great, great futures in front of them. You know, it's funny you talk about TJ Nichols and most of these people don't know who he is yet, but I thought when I saw him play as a high school senior, that he was a first rounder as a shortstop and that he may be Troy Gloss. And, has he even stepped on the field as a player? Is he just totally a pitcher? I think he could do whatever he wants, I mean, honestly. But, I mean, that's a special, special arm, and he's going to be a major leaguer someday or a billionaire. Whatever he wants to do, he will be successful at. 
Okay, so let me go into some of these questions. I appreciate your time, Jay, and I hope you have a few more minutes so we can get to these. If you don't, um, we can stop. Uh, are you good for a few more minutes? I'm good. I apologize for being late, so you can double my time however you need to. Oh, we can double it. No, that's <laughs> not the right thing to say. Um, here's I, We've got questions from all over the country. You know, obviously – um, people want to know there's a lot of questions with COVID and how, you know, the, the portal, all these different things. So here's, here's the first question. And this comes from a player up in uh, Walter's area, up in the North. How does a kid from the North get on your radar that doesn't participate in perfect game events and doesn't get ranked? I think the first thing that's important is to be the best player on your high school team. And what I mean by that is, and I know not all high school baseball situations are created equal. And, and, and this may not sound like conventional wisdom, but I've always looked at it at this way. If you're going to be a top level player in division one baseball, you kind of have to master or conquer the level that you're at first to be able to do that. And so I think being the best player you can be for your high school team to where the coach wants to pick up the phone and call an LSU and say, Hey, I really got a guy that can help you win a national championship. And this guy has a chance to be a future professional player. I think getting on the same page with that coach and doing a good job for him is really, really important. I think what gets lost a lot of times for players is they want the end destination. You know, they want to post that they committed to a school when really most of the time or 99% of your thinking should be about improving and developing because by doing that, you're widening the ranges of opportunities and creating opportunities for yourself. But we're like in this results-based world. And so people forget about the things they need to do to get the result that they want. And so the best thing you can do to get noticed is to focus on improving focusing on developing and being the best player you can be for your high school team. So that coach wants to pick up the phone and call a program that you're interested in and, and put his name behind you. If you can do that, you're moving in the right direction. Can you uh, talk about positions you are still recruiting for in the 2023 class? How has COVID impacted how you are looking at this particular graduating class in recruiting good question i think in terms of what we're looking for i kind of painted the picture of it of college world series caliber player you know winning caliber player in a game in a close game in omaha um, i know that's pretty vague um, i think the position by position thing probably has more to do with what happens in the next year with the Major League Baseball draft in terms of the recruits from the 22 class, our own team, those types of things. Um, so that's kind of a unique answer. You know, the one thing, I know this is different depending on what side of it, I think the one thing that COVID did is it slotted guys a little more probably where they should be. And what I mean by that is, some guys stayed in college an extra year because there was only a five-round 
draft. It allowed a lot of players that might not have gotten their degree to stay, finish, and get their degree. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I know it's it's kind of been tough for guys on the incoming end and the high school end of that. But, you know, life's tough sometimes too. I mean, 2020 was difficult for us at a team that could have gone to Omaha an- another time. And, and they pulled the rug out from from all of us and we didn't get that season. So my advice would be, again, focus on development, focus on improving, focus on doing the things that you can do to create opportunities for yourself and they will come. And, and it doesn't mean that to be a success that you have to play at LSU or Oklahoma state or Miami or Stanford, a lot of really good programs out there. And, and for me, the best coach you're always going to have in your life is called playing time. And so finding the level that's appropriate for you to get the best chance to play um, is always my advice when choosing a college in terms of baseball-related decision. Jay, let me ask you a question. Uh, Skip Burke, you know, has been an unbelievable coach at LSU, and it, it, most of his greatest stuff was d- using the mental game and, you know, teaching the mental game. How big of an influence uh, does he still have in your program? And does he at any time come speak to your players still? Yes. I actually was on his radio show earlier tonight, and um, he is the Nick Saban of college baseball. If you think about what Alabama football is today, that's what LSU baseball was in the 90s. And that's entirely because of Coach Burtman. And he's the best motivator in my opinion, in the history of, of college sports and is, is legendary for that. And uh, one of the things that I am really valuing is an opportunity to spend time with him here. And it's it's been one of the best things personally about being the coach at LSU is getting a chance to get to know him, spend time with him, pick his brain. And one of the first things I did when I got here was to ask him, come talk to our team and did a did an outstanding job and you know really grateful that that he built the program that he did and we're working hard to to continue continue his legacy and what he built here awesome three more questions and um would somebody wrote would love to know if he plans on expanding his recruiting circle i.e. outside the SEC lines and how to get seen if you are not within the normal boundaries for recruiting? Yeah, I think, you know, I want uh, highly motivated, uh, high character, highly skilled players that want to be professional players that want to do everything in their power to help us win a, a national championship. Where they come from, it could be anywhere. I mean, we have six players that could be in our opening day lineup from the state of Louisiana. That's awesome. That's really, really exciting. And uh, there are some really good qualities that some of those players have. Uh, the two players that get the most notoriety on our team, probably, one of them is from Florida and one of them is from Arizona. So they're complete different sides of the country. So for me, the boundaries are endless at a place like this. I think in terms of getting noticed, I would say, I'd go back to my previous answer of be the best player, be the best teammate, be the best worker on your high school team and connect with people 
that can help you develop and improve. If you do those things, then again, you create a lot more opportunities for yourself and that's good for everybody. Great answer. Okay. This, this is an interesting question. I thought, how does red shirting affect a student athlete when it comes to scholarships? If a student stays for a fifth year after red shirting, how does that affect their athletic and academic scholarship? Are students asked to give up pre-discussed scholarship money if they redshirt? I think it's probably a case-by-case basis. Every situation is unique. Every situation is different. And, um, you know, everybody's scholarship things are different. Like there's college baseball programs that aren't fully funded at 11.7, which is not enough scholarships to begin with. And so um, I think those things are just about communication and honesty and being straightforward between coach and player. That's always the way I deal with it is, is head on um, and try to do what's in the best interest of the player and the program. And if you're straightforward and you work on things together, then, then things usually work out. And, um, you know, but I don't want to speak for other coaches out there because other coaches may have a different way of doing it than I do. Okay. That's fair. Um, with extra COVID year, it seems like several schools are pulling from JUCO schools more so than high school players. Now, do you expect this trend to continue? You know, again, I, I wouldn't even know if that was accurate. I'll trust you, Butch, based oh, on. Oh, no, it was somebody's question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, for us, we signed more high school players than we did junior college players. I think we signed four junior college players. All of them were pitchers this year. I think when I looked at our team for 2023 and Lisa, what it should be, the, the mound was the area that we felt like we would need the most help to, to contend for a national championship. So, it was very deliberate to go get four pitchers that could immediately transition to the SEC and help us be, you know, towards the top of that league or the top of college baseball. And we should have in 2023, some older position players that will be in their second year with us in our program, which I expect to develop. So we could go get some high school players that we would have a chance to develop a little bit. So I really, believe in doing things by design as opposed to by default. And I'm always careful with like loaded statements of like, Hey, this is the way it is because it might be one way at LSU. It might be one way at the university of Miami or Virginia or Louisville. And everybody has their own way of doing things. Again, I would go back to everybody is trying to put on the best program they can and trying to win so I think it's trying to match what programs are about with the needs of the player. And if I was to give any recruiting advice, it would be this, is go where you're wanted, go where you have an opportunity to play, but probably more importantly than that is go to the program that your goals align with the strengths of that program. If you want to be a major league player and the coaching staff is great at developing major league talent, and there is a need and they want you and have a chance to play, now you got a jackpot. You know, your decision can actually be pretty, pretty easy. But what do you value? 
And does that program align with those goals? And when you start matching things up that way, a complicated and a tough decision can become a lot easier. Jay, that was a gold answer, as Walter would say. Unbelievable. Thank you. Um, the last question for the night, and I just want to tell you uh, how much we appreciate your time. You are uh, an incredible person, but, man, you are one incredible coach. Uh, I'm blown away by your ability uh, and by the way you speak and the things you talk about that are important for you in having this winning culture. So thank you for being on here. Unbelievable. Thank you. I appreciate that. The question is, my family and I live in a rural area, and my son is a junior and currently researching campuses and teams to go visit this fall. Lately, it seems like we are seeing 25, 23 to 25 kids commit, and they play for the state elite team in the summer. As parents, we worry about arm fatigue since he's a left-handed pitcher, as well as the cost to be in that league, so we weren't too upset about they had some miscommunication. I skipped a little bit. He's been approached for joining the elite team this summer fall. His dad and I will support him either way, but I'm conflicted as I see it as dumping the team he has been part of. My question is, does not being on an elite travel team hurt his chance to get a college offer? I think it has more to do with the player and the person than what team that you play for. Now, with that being said, there's programs with great reputations of moving on, uh, moving players on to high levels of Division One baseball. And I think it's smart to do your research on those, and there's a lot of great ones out there. But again, I, I, I want to try to get this point across. The player is ultimately responsible for where they end up. And if you're a performer, and you are a person of character, then you will be found. And I think you said left-handed pitcher. Those are always, always of need at any program across college baseball because they're always, always usable. So I think there's another, <laughs> there's another question there about, you know, sticking with the team you're with and playing with friends. I mean, that, that's valuable as well. I just really believe if you're good enough, people will find you. For some people, it will be at a travel ball tournament. For some people, it'll be in high school. For some people, it will be at a junior college. And all of them are okay. And we need we as Division One programs need all of those resources to build the types of teams and programs that we want to. So I just want everybody to maybe kind of get their head around the accountability lies within the player. And it's not going to be because you played for this team that this this happened. I think it's smart to research them and make the best decision that you can. And um, But I think ultimately the player is responsible for where they end up by how they perform, how they carry themselves, and things of that nature. Unbelievable answer. Again, let me ask you this one last thing because I just I had it written down and I wanted to ask you, and it's from a hitting standpoint because I hear – a lot of coaches talk about this, and I think sometimes kids don't understand what this means. 
can you you said the word connected when a guy hits he's got to be connected can you give these kids and these families what you're saying when you're saying staying connected yeah for sure um you know that is basically what we would call swinging the bat with your entire body and connecting your upper body with your lower body and so if you were to ask me like big leaguers and there's more than these guys but who we pattern or who we follow after um you know i'm getting a little older so i got to be careful with this but uh we show a lot of albert pujols when he was with the cardinals we show a lot of barry bonds obviously during his time with the giants uh right now we show our players a lot of michael brantley for the astros um they're very simple simple guys in terms of getting in position uh that front foot down early they lead their swing with their lower half um they have good hip shoulder separation meaning once their eyes say this is a pitch we want to go on they start uh their swing uh with their backside back knee back hip starting to move forward uh create a little bit of separation between when their shoulders move they keep those square to the plate but then they have this i I hate using the word move because i think of the swing as the swing but you know the back elbow gets into the back hip and basically the hands are just holding the bat and the barrel barrel is parallel to the back shoulder. And as the back hip moves and gets to full speed, we want the body to bring the bat out naturally. And if you do that, you're going to create the best amount of bat speed. Uh, The analogy I'll use with our players a lot is like, if you think of figure skating, I know it's kind of strange to tie these two together, but as a figure skater is going fast and all those turns, their arms are in close to their body and they can create a lot of torque and speed. What they do to slow themselves down when they come out of it is they take their arms and hands away from their body, which they start moving slower. Well, as a hitter, we want to be in position to move fast, turn fast and drive. And so that's kind of what getting connected means just getting the bat, you know, in position with the body where the body is now going to deliver the bat instead of just kind of throwing your hands at it, so to speak. Last question about this, a front box hitting, you know, guys talk about making contact with Anthony. Where do you think best contact and most, uh, you know, when guys hit the ball as hard as they can, where, where is that contact at? I think it depends where the pitch is. I think it also depends on the hitter's unique qualities. I mean, we have a, a hitter right now named Dylan Cruz who is an unbelievable talent. I mean, maybe the most talented guy that I've I've seen in in my time in coaching college baseball. And he has so much bat speed that, I mean, you can literally think he's not going to swing on a 93-mile-an-hour fastball, and he'll decide late with the ball incredibly deep but have enough strength to get the fat part of the bat there and use his lower half to drive it out out of the stadium the other way so it's different for him versus somebody that may not have that bat speed and has to start earlier um i think it depends on where the pitch is at obviously the pitch that's further away from you probably needs to be hit deeper in the zone so you can stick keep it close to your body so you can get your strength behind the ball um you know i'm careful with saying letting the ball get deep and i'm careful with saying you know, getting the bat head out because it can be a confusing message. I think what we do, though, is with a lot of our T work is we'll put 
will put the ball exactly where we want the hitter to hit it in terms of relationship to their body. And on an away pitch, we literally put it like right in line with their front foot. Um, so their strength is still behind the ball and usually try to hit the ball back through the middle of the field. Um, I'm careful answering that question because I think it's different for different guys. And I think it's different based on uh, where the pitch is thrown. Thank you for answering that question. Hey, what a great night spending with you, uh, listening to you. I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate it again. And if there's one last thing that you can give coaches out here, kids, families, what what would your advice be? Yeah, I think a couple things. Uh, number one is you have a window uh, of, in this baseball thing. I mean, I'm lucky that I get to do this as my profession. As a player, you have a lot shorter window than as a coach. So if you really want to do it and, and go for it, you have to go all in on it. Um, I'm a pretty boring person. I don't have a lot of hobbies. Um, it's 100% LSU baseball all the time, developing our players, developing our program. And that's a mindset I've carried with me as an athlete and as a coach is just not being distracted. And I think if you want to be elite or great at something, you kind of have to, it's a narrow lens. You kind of have to look down. And so if, if I'm speaking really to the players on this, um, I think it's great to have a lot of different interests and stuff, but if you really want to be great at something, I think focusing on only one thing, you know, can help you help you get there. And then, uh, something I heard the other day that I really liked is discipline is more important than motivation. I mean, motivation can come and go, um, but if you have true discipline to do the right thing over and over and over and over again, that's how you become a, an expert at it. So those two things together, um, you know, I think I think can be helpful. And sometimes things we don't think about because in life it's easy to get distracted and. And a lot of things catch our attention, and that's not all bad. But if you want to be great at something, I think narrowing your focus is is a good way to go. Jay, thank you for tonight. I appreciate you taking the time to get on. And I'm sorry we had such problems early to get on. Uh, but I want to wish you the best of luck. I am going to be at your series at Mississippi State. So I'm really looking forward to that series. And I wish you the best of luck this year. Well, make sure you wear purple when you go over there, okay, Butch? And, uh, <laughs> I do thank, have purple. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and I apologize for the technical difficulties and just want to wish everybody luck and have a great year. Thank you. We'll talk to you guys later. See you tomorrow night. Good night, everybody.